Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that gives you a zoom because it's what everybody on Earth is listening to nowadays. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Dynrich of Chipperish Media, and today we are joined by Rob Hyrett, host of Chipperish Media's Star Wars podcast, Metaphors Be With You, who joins us whenever we talk about spacey stuff. Welcome, Rob. You know, they told me you people were conceited douchebags, but that isn't true at all. I see you winking there, Hyrett. Welcome, Rob, and thanks for joining us as we work our way through the good, the bad, and the I am Groot of the MCU. So listen up, a-holes. We're going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Well, longtime listeners of Listen Up A-Holes will recall that the Guardians movie gave me hives and nightmares when it came to all the nonstop shit I had to cover in the first movie. And good news, everybody, it's not much better this time. Just everything in the kitchen sink thrown into this movie, and it didn't need to be, but those are rants for later. For now, let's talk about the 616 version of Ego the Living Planet. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the comic book history for this because it's got to be interesting. Well, and let's let's be sure that we don't confuse him with Mogo, the planet who is a Green Lantern. That's right. It's a whole different company. <laughs> a whole different p- planet with a, with his name ends in Go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Much nicer dude, though, honestly. Like, if you had yeah. to hang out with a living planet, Mogo is the cat to go with. Ego totally. is, as you can tell from his name, kind of a giant douche nozzle. But <laughs> let's go back to basics. Originally created by Stan and Jack Drink, Drink. for Thor number 132 in 1966, Ego is exactly what you get on the tin. A living planet. <laughs> I'd like to quote Jack Kirby here for a moment on the inspiration of Ego, okay? Are you ready for this? Yes. I am ready. A planet that was alive. A planet that was intelligent. That was nothing new, either because there had been other stories about live planets, and that's not acceptable. You would say, yeah, that's wild, but how do you relate to it? Why is it alive? So I felt somewhere out in the universe, the universe became denser and turns liquid. And in this liquid, there was a giant multiple virus. And if it remained isolated for millions and millions of years, it would begin to evolve by itself and it would begin to think. By the time we reached it, it might be quite superior to us. And that was ego. Can you fucking deal with that? (laughs) From anyone else, that would be a goddamn manifesto, but it's a Tuesday for Jack Kirby. (laughs) Yeah, he was almost 50 years old when he came up with that shit. Oh, he was doing some hard drugs in the 60s, though, right? He was not. Jack is super straight edge. All he ever did was smoke tobacco endlessly and without ceasing. Oh, no. I'm just, I'm just saying, gang, I really hope my imagination never gets old. I just right. want to have Jack Kirby's imagination for my entire life. It's Don't fun. We all. <laughs> so as you can tell, there's some pretty significant differences between the ego of the 616 and the ego of the MCU. Mm-hmm. The 616 ego has, as you can imagine, some fuckery with its origin. You know, it's been a minute. So <laughs> sometimes it's a scientist who was merged with a planet during a supernova. But most of the time, it's what the king always intended. The evolution of life on a planetary scale. 
Ego is spectacularly old and powerful. It's even considered an elder of the universe. Those are capital E and capital U. There's a whole group of those guys we will not go into right now. <laughs> but they're a very exclusive club of very old and very powerful assholes. Okay. <laughs> And isn't isn't Jeff Goldblum's character in Thor Ragnarok also one of those? Jeff Goldblum's character in Thor Ragnarok is kind of an elder, not in the MCU, but in the 616, is an elder of the universe. So is Benicio Del Toro from our previous Guardians outings. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There are two things that have never been true about the 616 ego, though. First, it has never purposefully taken on a man-sized shape and would frankly be horrified at the suggestion. Second, ego is not a celestial. Now, I'm gonna punt most of this talk to a future discussion of the Eternals because the Celestials are a big damn deal for their mythology. But -hmm. in the 616 at least, that word doesn't just mean any old being of inconceivable age and indescribable power. It means a very specific set of inconceivably old and indescribably powerful god (laughs) geneticists of literally giant proportions. Wow. Lonnie, you may recall that I have discussed Arishem the Judge. Uh Uh-huh. A celestial whose thumbs down destroys the worlds he has thought wanting. (laughs) He got a big glyph on his thumb, and when he gives your planet a thumbs down, your planet blows up. Presuming he has not gotten to Earth yet, because damn. Oh, he goes to Earth from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) We have been judged. We've been judged reasonably okay. Like, that's... So ego, not a celestial, because specificity is the soul of good communication, Mm -hmm. but more on that in the future. Ego's main powers are a total control over every inch of its planetary surface and immense psionic abilities that rival Galactus the World Eater or a bunch of other cosmic Marvel types that only nerds have heard of. (laughs) Like Zerum the Tester? Wow. (laughs) Okay, it is so great having Rob here because he actually knows what you're talking about. I have actually read the entire handbook of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> oh, cover yeah. to cover to cover to cover to cover wow. to cover. Boy, that was a moment <laughs> in time, too. I yeah. swore by DC who's who, friends. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> For sure. Now, Ego does have a brain in its gooey center, just like the movie, but unlike the movie, it has little humanoid things called antibodies that come out from its innards to fight people who try and do shit like what Groot did. <laughs> Bodily stormtroopers. <laughs> oh, and Ego used to have a massive hyperdrive engine stuck into his South Pole in order to get around. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that sounds not vaguely sexual. Yeah. Was it built by someone? Well, you see, Galactus crammed it there and then pointed Ego in a random direction so that Ego, who couldn't stop or steer, wouldn't be able to start any more shit. And now that you know that, don't you think a bomb in his brain is the laziest ending to this movie? Yeah. Well, now that I know he had super powerful anal beads, yeah, sure. Wow, that's a thing. <laughs> now, eventually, Ego did learn to control the engine. And now he seems to be able to get around without it. But I, for one, will always miss the days when a Starship engine was crammed into Ego where the sun don't shine. <laughs> I love that it's the South Pole because... <laughs> 
Well, now that's a whole new euphemism. Yeah. You can cram your hyperdrive in your South Pole. Yeah. That, that is clearly the writer of that comic. What would be the most anal location on a planet? Yes. South, South, there you go. Yeah. South Pole. Got it. <laughs> Deepest Canyon would also be an option, I suppose. <laughs> I think Rob should be here for like all of the four color facts. It's so much more fun when somebody knows what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, in this case, hyperdrive in the South Pole is a series of jokes that write itself. But yeah. I'm not gonna lie. It's nice to have another not quite straight man when it comes to the four color facts. <laughs> All right, now listen, you yahoos. We got a lot to get through here. Can we please? Can the class please? This is the reason I can't be here every time for Four Color Facts, is I double the length of the thing. Man, not on these ones where there's a million people. So let's okay. talk about Nebula. Uh, all right, baby, go ahead. Here is something I don't say very often. The MCU version of this character is 10,000 times more interesting than the 616 version. All right. Now, I'm not bagging on the MCU. It's just that they're basically strip mining the 616. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a different version or a refinement of most characters rather than something all new. But with mm -hmm. Nebula, they went into uncharted territory and, as far as I'm concerned, discovered a fucking treasure. But more right. on that as we shit talk this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Way preview. Way to give it away, Unruh. Well, <laughs> most people listening probably heard the last episode about Guardians. So. Very true, very true. 616 Nebula is a space pirate. Mm -hmm. She's a very good space pirate and has a great crew, but that's all she is. Well, I guess she did step up her game a bit when she stole Thanos' massive starship, the Sanctuary 2, by claiming that she was his granddaughter while he was dead. <laughs> Now, as you can imagine, Thanos was not amused by all this when he eventually came back, because he always fucking comes back. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. I, I, sorry, sorry. I, I, I know I said I wouldn't interrupt so much, but Nebula's great crime is inheritance fraud? <laughs> <laughs> that is a badass space pirate. <laughs> Listen, I think that that's very impressive. She's a lateral thinker. She's like, that's I know true. that I could just board this ship and take it by force, but why don't I commit inheritance fraud instead? A and little, let me tell a you. A little white collar crime is a nice break for a pirate. And you get away and with it a lot more you. consistently. That's true. Let me say to you that if the punishment defines the level of the crime, mm -hmm. <laughs> It's a big motherfucker, because when okay. Thanos got the Infinity Gauntlet, he used it to turn Nebula into a grotesque zombie thing, leaving oh. her burned and disfigured by his energy beams and seemingly mindless. He said to death herself that he considered Nebula his finest creation, a thing mm. that was neither truly dead nor truly alive. Oh, that's dark. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, again, remember that in the 616, we have literalized the nihilism of Thanos by making him fall yeah. in love with the personification of death. Like we, right. 616 goes hard. I'm just, cosmic stuff is big. I like big. it. I like it. Half the universe was his wedding present to her, right? Yeah, something like that. She was very yeah. upset that, uh, uh, wait, you know what? I'm not doing it. We're going to save that for when we actually get to Endgame and Infinity oh, fair, War. Fair, fair, Sorry, yes. Fair point. 
<laughs> it's going to be an hour and a half, just the four color facts. Nope. I nope. love it. I'm keeping this on track. Here we go. All so right, she eventually right. freed on, herself and took mm -hmm. the gauntlet from Thanos while he was in the astral plane. She healed herself, banished Thanos, and went on a universal conquest bender that did not work <laughs> out very well for her. <laughs> I like her though. She's badass. She's very cool. She really is. She's just not as cool as she is in the MCU, which again, kind yeah. of a rarity. Usually, mm -hmm. you know, it's not that way. Now, more recently, she's been hanging out with Gamora, which is kind of weird because they didn't really have much of a connection despite these movies. Mm -hmm. But Nebula has been seen as one of Gamora's graces, an interplanetary mm -hmm. group of warrior women. But I am super hoping some of that gets into a future Guardians project, so I'm going to put a pin in it for the moment. Here's Yondu. <laughs> now to explain what the actual hell is up with Yondu, I actually have to quote myself from our previous Guardians episode, so please bear with me. Mm -hmm. The original team of Guardians first appeared in January of 1969 in a book called Marvel Superheroes, a combination of reprint material and a tryout book for new ideas like the Guardians. The original team is a group of last of their kind survivors, including an astronaut from 20th century Earth who took a thousand years to reach Alpha Centauri at slower than light speeds. They wind up in a guerrilla war on a humanless Earth against the Badoon, a conquering race of strictly gender segregated reptilian aliens. They also time travel a lot. This group bounced around various fill-in and backup stories until the late 90s when they got their own title for the first time, and it ran for 62 issues. Until literally the mid-2000s, that is the squad that most comic fans would have thought of as the Guardians of the Galaxy, if they thought of them <laughs> at all, and Yondu was a member of that squad. Uh-huh. Except that Yondu, while looking similar to the MCU Yondu, was actually kind of a noble savage type character from Centauri 4. He has a natural empathic rapport with the natural world, which is strongest on his home world and gets weaker the more different the biome is and the more complex the organism. So he has great empathy with like animals and plants, but less so with sentient, you know, humanoids. He's also a master archer who is able to whistle with perfect pitch across four octaves. This skill at whistling is what gives him the ability to control the direction of his arrows, which are made from a substance that can be affected by specific pitch and intonation. Okay, okay I kind of love that. Yeah. I really dope, do love right? that detail. It's pretty awesome. But none of that looks very much like Yondu that was adaptively distilled into the Guardians of the Galaxy mm -hmm. movies. Which is why after the first movie came out, they introduced a version in the present day 616 that looks a lot like our boy from the films. Mm -hmm. He's even been declared the great, 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 great grandfather of the Yondu in the original Guardians of the Galaxies. Mm -hmm. And he's pals with the 616 Star-Lord because they're both abandoned orphans, except they didn't meet until they were adults because the 616 Star-Lord is almost laughably different than the <laughs> MCU version. And if that seemed confusing or stupid, let's talk about Mantis. Oh, please, let's. <laughs> Appearing in Avengers in 1973, Mantis is the, you're never going to believe it, half Vietnamese, half German daughter of Gustav Brandt, a.k.a. Libra of the international terrorist organization, the Zodiac Cartel. Mm-hmm. Brant leaves his child in Vietnam at the Temple of the Alien Priests of Pama, a religious sect of the Cree living on Earth. The Pama believe she might be the Celestial Madonna who will mate oh. with the eldest Kotati in the universe. God. Oh, yeah, the groans are only going to get worse, you guys. It's not good. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole... 
Why Ooh. is every okay? Let me just. Why is every prophecy about a woman about who they're gonna fuck? What is that, Lonnie? What else is there to say about women? Oh God, I know. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, know. This, this I just watched Guardians too. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's uh, no. You're right to be upset, but I'm just telling you, it's only going to mm-hmm. get worse from here. So <laughs> hot damn. Okay. Let's let's hear it. Buckle up. Bring she it. was supposed to mate with the eldest Kotati on Earth. The Kotati, the Kotati are sentient telepathic plant aliens. This union will create the celestial messiah, who is, I quote, the most important being in the universe. Mm-hmm. Like in the Lego Which movie. Si- sounds like some Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy shit, man. Like just, it does. I'm the most oh important being in the universe. Have we met? Finger guns. <laughs> okay, here's where shit gets worse. You see... Although she excelled in her martial arts studies, upon reaching adulthood, the Pama wiped her mind and sent her out on her own to gain life experience. She becomes a prostitute and a barmaid. Jesus fucking Christ. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. In a Vietnamese bar where she meets the swordsman, a mentor to Hawkeye, so obviously a real fucking winner. Oh, God. (laughs) Through him, she comes into contact with the Avengers and eventually joins the team. And then it gets real fucking weird. And by weird, I mean cosmic, but also incredibly misogynist. You see, (laughs) Swordsman dies, which is when she realizes she loved him. Later, Mm -hmm. she marries a Kotati living in the reanimated body of the Swordsman. Oh, Oh, it's like Swamp Thing in reverse. God. Oh God, it kinda is. Man, it's problematic. So wait, so wait, she thinks it's the swordsman or does nope. she know she knew oh, for which is not better? Sake. I don't know. <laughs> so they leave Earth together, and she is indeed the celestial Madonna and does indeed give birth to the celestial Messiah. She raises her half human, half tree child in Connecticut, <laughs> because why not? <laughs> She then handed Sequoia, yes, that's his name, although sometimes he goes by Koi, and what the hell. God! So she hands Sequoia off to his father's people, and she went to find the Silver Surfer. She needed him to help her stop a plot to kill Galactus by the elders of the universe, who I may have mentioned are assholes. (laughs) They were gathering the Infinity Gems so that they could kill Galactus just because they're, I don't, listen, you know what, I'm not getting into that either. But they had some reasons they weren't great. Mantis was presumed killed in an explosion, but she survived only to be split into different aspects of her personality, which I have seen described online as freak, mother, prostitute, mystic, and avenger the hell. Oh my God. Eventually, she reconstitutes the fragments into a single being because Thanos came to kill them all, and each time he killed one, it fled to the next one. He was mad about some shit with the celestial messiah seriously this shit is convoluted even for me please do not ask questions okay. <laughs> no i love though that seriously this shit is convoluted even for me is in the script because he knew i was I gonna be like what <laughs> I know. because one of the mantises might have been an evil queen of time who reigned alongside king the conqueror and tried to kill the avengers but that one might also have been a space phantom it depends on who you ask Ask. Oh, she also used to flirt with Vision a lot, even though she knew that Scarlet Witch was into him. So shit is wild. Oh, my God. 
she gave up her physical form so as to live with the Kotati and raise her son. But of course, nobody in superhero comics gets to ride off into the sunset, so she eventually gets roped back into Avengers nonsense. Mm-hmm. Oh, and during one of the books that gave us the modern incarnation of the Guardians, she was a prisoner in a Kree prison planet who was freed by Star-Lord. Later, Mm -hmm. when they take over nowhere as their base, she operates as the counselor for the station. So I guess that's how they decided to put her in this movie? I don't know. Well, uh, well, uh, let's let's not put too fine a point on it. Counselor later on, but first, like, roofie that gets people to join the team? Okay, now look, I was going (laughs) to cut all of that out. (laughs) And you're going to edit this, so if you want to cut it out, by all means, but... (laughs) Let me digress briefly. since Rob brought it up. I may have mentioned that the Star-Lord of the 616 is laughably different than the one in the MCU. The main difference is that the Star-Lord of the 616 is not a man-child, but he is a raving asshole. I mean, just like <laughs> he is the, he is one of the noblest blooded people in the galaxy, but he also rejected his family because they were such a level of asshole that he couldn't deal with his dad. Mm. And yet he still wanders around the galaxy going, still Star-Lord, motherfuckers, do as you're told. And one of the ways that that manifested itself is that he used <laughs> Mantis's empathic abilities to kind of futz around with the other Guardians' minds so that they would all join the team. He's the worst. The yeah. worst. But also, the MCU one's the worst, but in totally different ways. It's actually kind of fantastic, in a way. So as you can imagine, with all of that in mind, 616 Mantis bears very little relation to the MCU Mantis. 616 mm-hmm. is no wilting flower. In mm-hmm. fact, as one of the most accomplished martial artists in the galaxy, she tended to be very action-oriented. She even knocked Thor out. Ooh, I like it. She has only ever lost a fight to her father during very mm-hmm. extenuating circumstances, and Moondragon, who you may recall is the 616's Drax's human daughter who grew up to leave Earth and learn Titan martial arts and telepathy. So you know, mm-hmm. not exactly a fair fight. <laughs> No. <laughs> 616 Mantis does have empathic abilities that have waxed and waned over the years, but they aren't what you'd call her primary function in quite the way that they are in the MCU. Yeah, yeah, literal emotional labor. Yeah. <laughs> We're not even trying to mask that shit. Okay. Oh, I'm no. sorry, we'll talk about that when we get there. <clears throat> yeah, I have one more, one more, okay. sort of an honorable mention. <laughs> Taser face. Okay. <laughs> Now, Taserface is also from the 616 and first appeared mm-hmm. in Guardians of the Galaxy number one in 1990. So anyone who knows anything about 90s comics now entirely understands why he is unironically named Taserface. <laughs> <sighs> I blame Todd McFarlane. Now, oh, we've got a lot. Oh, there's a lot of blame and a lot of people who can take it. A lot. Fair. Now, I only bring him up because he is so different than he is in the MCU. And there is one great wild idea mixed into his backstory. Uh-huh. Taserface comes from a planet of recently primitive people who adapt the stark armor and technology that accidentally falls onto their planet. Their entire civilization is a cargo cult based around Tony Stark. And I have to tell you, I can't imagine a better start to a super powered comedy of errors than that. 
Oh my God. They changed their name to the Stark and they worship him. And friends, that is no recipe for running a civilization. No, no, it is not. (laughs) I don't even know how to transition out of that to like... Guardians of the Galaxy 2 came out in 2017. It was written and directed by James Gunn. Like, how do you, how do I segue from that shit? Yeah. Uh, Here, let me, I'll take a stab at it. And now everybody's getting a look behind the curtain, but here it is. So if you think that was weird and problematic, it was. And now here's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Lonnie, tell us about it. (laughs) Thank you very much, Joshua. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Volume 2, came out in 2017. It was written and directed by James Gunn. The air quotes around written are visible from space. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. We will have that discussion. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, Guardians 3 is set to come out in 2021 with James Gunn also at the helm, despite being fired from the movie in 2018 over some controversial tweets that Gunn wrote some years ago. Uh, They rehired him in 2019 after the stars of the series came to his defense and he apologized for the tweets. And y'all can decide how you feel about that. Uh, I was already offended by a tweet that Gunn sent out in 2015 saying that the mom was the primary and antagonist of Guardians 1, and no, I'm not over that yet, so just fucking deal with it. <laughs> Box office take for Guardians 2 is $669 million, accounting for the budget, which isn't a huge increase from Guardians 1, which came in at $604 million profit, and remember, we are talking in Marvel dollars, so that is the equivalent to the change that you find under the car seat in your vehicle. <laughs> so, um, that's it's not that much for them. Um, so, yeah, James Gunn, um, as a, a writer... Um, I, 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 is a I, I hell don't of a even, director. <laughs> I don't. Is a hell of a director, right? I don't even know where to start with this. So let's go ahead and just start with like the the nice moment of of synergy. Uh, this movie, Joshua, is actually the one that has the inspiration for the title of our podcast. Listen up, a holes. People have been wondering about this forever. So can you tell how we got from Showtime a holes to Listen Up a holes? Well, um. Yes, I can. Uh, (laughs) My son was about eight, I think Mm -hmm. eight-ish, when we were watching this movie, and you and I were talking about what we should name the podcast, and he thinks, still to this day, that the beginning, when Star-Lord says, Showtime a-holes, he thought that was hilarious, and he comes in (laughs) and he's like, you guys should call it Listen Up (laughs) A-holes, and then stands there like... He had presented this to me, like the cat that drops the dead mouse in front of you and like, isn't it great? And you and I said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. I loved it. So there it is. That's what's up. So there it is. So there it is. We can thank Baby Unruh for, uh, oh, he's not quite a baby anymore, um, for uh, for naming this podcast. So for everybody who has been confused from the beginning, why we call it Listen Up A-Holes and why the fans of this show are A-Holes. Uh, that's why. It's because of Baby Unruh. So Sorry, not sorry. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, kind of hurtful. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> 
We mean it with nothing but affection. Um, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and start in on a rant, and you guys are free to pop in whenever you want, but I have ranted. The guys are looking at my my copious notes about this movie, um, and uh, and it's, it's a real problem for me. This movie is a hot mess. I'm going to start with just narratively, like where the problems are. Um, I started watching this movie some years ago. Everybody loved it. It came out, everybody loved it, right? And I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this movie. It's supposed to be great. Um, so I watched like the first, I don't know, 30 minutes of it and then got to the part where Mantis was feeling Star-Lord's feelings and making text this subtext, which had already been slathered on, you know, about him having a thing for for Gamora. And I just was like, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I tapped out and I didn't want to watch any more of it because I'd hated everything up to that point and that was my breaking point. Um, but then last night, Rob and I sat down to watch this together and Rob... <laughs> heard me throughout the whole time being like I don't even I don't I this is terrible I don't care <laughs> the whole movie yeah um, yeah so it's it's um, it's really really bad and I kept thinking because I've heard from so many people that they love this movie that I was going to like get it at some point that it was going to kind of synthesize and come together for me and that the more I thought about it the more I would like it and actually uh, oh, the opposite no. has happened <laughs> <laughs> oh no the literal opposite the the, the worst thing you can do for Guardians 2 is think about it. The absolute worst. Yeah. Absolutely. If you think about it at all, it just gets worse. I mean, I hate this movie. (laughs) There There are a lot of things I hate about this movie. I'm going to talk about the narrative because that's where I'm on the most solid intellectual ground and the rest of it is just emotional, visceral hatred and we can all like, you know, have fun with that. Um, but the structure is a mess. There is no one clear line of narrative conflict for the movie to work with. And you know, that's okay. You can have a parallel structure, multiple stories going on at once in one movie, and that's fine. But this movie has that a little bit, but all of the narrative structures are completely weak. It is almost as though somebody who thought that the mother was the antagonist <laughs> in the first movie, which he wrote, doesn't understand how story works. All right. So anyway, first we open with not one, but two. Two. Two prologues. Everybody who listens to How Story Works knows how I feel about prologues. If you don't, just listen to How Story Works. I'm sure I probably talked about it here as well. Um, Just because the antagonist planted his flower both literally and figuratively 34 years ago does not make it part of this conflict. It's a fucking prologue. Um, The fight that they do for Aisha is kind of a prologue as well because we just have this opening sequence that's sort of fun and we get baby Groot while everybody else is fighting and it's kind of fun to have that little flip on the the perspective of that and it probably wouldn't bother me so much if the rest of this movie was such a fucking mess. Can I I pause there for just a sec? Yes. Go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to mention that the one thing I do really like about that second prologue yes. is that it is essentially the mission statement of the movie. There's a giant yes. action-y fight happening in the background. We don't give a shit about it. We're going to w- watch Baby Groot dance. And that, yes. that at least is very honest about how the movie works. It really doesn't, like, the story is totally irrelevant. Watch the yes. spectacle silliness. Yes, absolutely. And I think you're right. It is absolutely truth in advertising. Yeah. Like, it's a thing they yeah. literally do two or three more times through the movie, too. And I oh, yeah. don't hate it, honestly. Yeah. No, it's it's the thing I like most about it, probably. Right. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. That's okay. I will I will finish my rant very, very soon. Um, so with all of the narratives are a mess. We have with these two prologues. Then we've got Peter versus Ego, which is kind of like the central, like the big... I, I won't call it a conflict because it's not an effective conflict, but it's like the big 
story thing that's happening for most of the movie. Uh, but the thing is that the conflict starts when the protagonist feels the influence of the antagonist's goals pushing against his goals. And this doesn't happen for Peter until right before the final battle at the climax. Until then, there is no conflict with him and his father. He's just like, well, let me get to know daddy, right? So there's no narrative conflict anyway. We have a little bit of internal conflict for him where he's not really sure how he feels about this guy. Uh, narrative conflict for those of you who who don't know. And again, you can go to How Story Works. I explain all of this. There's a podcast, How Story Works. So I explain all of this in much, much more detail. But narrative conflict is when a protagonist has a goal, an antagonist has a goal. Those goals are mutually exclusive. And that is the conflict upon which the structure of a story is built. All right. So there's no narrative conflict. There is mundane conflict where people are just, you know, kind of fighting and arguing with each other and that kind of stuff. Um, but we don't really have a narrative conflict that we can sort of build this story. So there's a lot of kind of sitting around, people talking and things that are, quote unquote, I think, supposed to be intended to be, quote unquote, cute. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, <laughs> I do actually we, think I know what the real, the actual conflict of this film is. And the real conflict yeah. of this film is, is the movie Gamora. versus the audience. Oh, <laughs> oh, ouch! Meta, yes. <laughs> yeah, getting some meta with that shit. Yes, it's Gamora. But internally, I think it's Gamora mm. versus dumb boys. Ah, mm. uh, there is a little bit of that. I think that is also unintentional. Like oh, everything no, I'm else sure that happens in this story. James Gunn thinks every dumbass thing, every male idiot on screen does is fucking hilarious and you can tell he might as well walk into the screen and smile and thumbs up and finger guns every time there's a joke <laughs> oh yes and and also joke is in quotes. All right. So we have Aisha and the Sovereign versus Rocket, right? You know, which results in two big fights, neither of which really necessarily have consequence. They just sort of complicate other things that are going on. Uh, they're really more of an inconvenience than actual fights or what. Ever, although there is something interesting about that, which we'll talk about later when we talk about the fucking body count. But anyway, right now I'm in the narrative. <laughs> I'd um, like to tell you that the other meta conflict that Listen yes. to Payholes has with this movie is whether I was going to deal with Aisha and Adam. By the way, I didn't. Because I don't think it's going to be in the next movie. I think they're going to forget about it. But there was a mm. moment where the four color facts were even longer. Oh my so God. much longer. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we end up bringing that back in, because who the fuck knows, right? Um, it could be about anything, because nobody really knows what this movie is about at any given time. Uh, the one actual real conflict that we do have here, although it is in a side story that's not given a whole lot, is Nebula versus Nebula. Uh, Nebula is engaging in an internal conflict here that is a legit narrative conflict, because she wants two things that are mutually exclusive. Uh, she has a desire to love and be loved by her sister, and also the desire to kill her sister and thus have victory over her finally. Um, and it may present, it, it, it's easy to confuse as an external conflict because it does seem like it's Nebula versus Gamora, but it's not because for most of it, Gamora is not actually present. She's not there. They only have like one fight and in the middle of it, Nebula stops killing her, you know? So it is an internal, she is stopped not by Gamora, but by herself. So it is a, a conflict within herself. So this is the only actual functional narrative conflict in the movie, um, but it's basically this minor side story it doesn't seem to understand that it's an internal conflict i think that the writer uh, james gunn um <laughs> the writer as i say writer in quotes again like i think that he thought it was an external conflict but then again he doesn't know because he thinks the mother is the antagonist in the verse movie <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. <clears throat> then we have Rocket and Yondu versus the Ravagers slash Taserface. Again, not a strong narrative conflict. It's over pretty quickly. Um, and it's really little more than a distraction to keep Yondu and Rocket occupied while everything else is going on. Um, bottom line, James Gunn does not understand narrative. And somebody needs to take Guardians 3 away from him. Controversial tweets, whatever. The fact that he doesn't know what he's freaking doing with story is driving me crazy. And then, of course, there's all the misogyny. <laughs> also another thing it's like here's the cherry on your shit salad sunday <laughs> yep. i actually have an entire list here and it is not it is not exhaustive this is just off the top of my head the stuff oh, that damn. pissed me off while watching this movie but i didn't want to rant during the whole thing because I feel like that's a bit much. But I mean, there's all this middle school humor, this casual misogyny that just drives me crazy. Do you guys want to take this section so that I'm not <laughs> ranting this entire time? Or would you be more comfortable with me doing it because I'm a woman and I can talk about misogyny? Do Do we have anything nice to say about the narrative first before we go? Like anything? No, I'm just wondering. I don't. Do you guys have anything nice to say about the narrative? Because I don't. No. No. <laughs> I guess I guess what I have to say about the narrative that is positive is that I really love the Nebula and Gamora stuff and really wish that yeah. that had been the entirety of this movie's core conflict. Sure. Yeah, if Nebula had been if Nebula had owned this movie, this would be an entirely different discussion we'd be having right now. Mm -hmm. And the thing that surprised me having not seen this in quite in quite a while was like I had been tricked because I liked the Guardians reasonably well, except for Peter in um, in Infinity War and Endgame, where of course they're mm -hmm. being written by different people. And uh -huh. so coming back to the James Gunn version of the Guardians, I'm like, oh fuck, that's right. This is this is not good. Like I don't I don't find these jokes very funny. I find Drax just terrible every time he's on screen. I, like I mm -hmm. I don't care about anything he says or does, and I dislike him being around. Um, and then there's this whole. From narratively speaking, my, I, my personal like thing that I look for in stories is metaphor. Duh. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we, none of that here. Yeah. Well, there is exactly one that I found. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's um, there's the, the the game of catch with dad, and that's mm -hmm. that's cute. It's super easy and Fair. on the nose. You know, anyone who doesn't even look for metaphors will spot that one because he literally mentions catch and then they're literally throwing a ball back and forth with like mm -hmm. slow motion Norman Rockwell sepia going. It, it's, you know, it, <laughs> it's, it is there to be seen. But there's these sort of half promised metaphors as well. Like Rocket stole batteries as the weird treasure from the from the uh, the sovereign. And mm -hmm. I was spent, you know, half the movie puzzling over why why batteries? Why would the writer choose batteries? And then there's the line that um that ego says about, you know, Peter's going to wind up being a battery for for the the expansion later on and it's like, "Oh, is that it? Is that connected?" No, it they're just batteries because that's a an ex, a potential explosive that so, doesn't sound like an explosive. Like it makes mm -hmm. sense that rocket can turn batteries into a bomb. That's why they're yeah. batteries. Yeah. And then and then finally, my other uh, weird ass not quite metaphor thing going on is so you have the 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 scene that's clearly an arcade where the sovereign are like remote piloting their ships, you know, at the arcade machines. And then Peter, you know, turns into Pac-Man for the big fight. And then at the end, he's scolding Groot for playing this mind-numbing video game. Like, there's a three-beat where <laughs> video games, like, that's the entire statement, is just video games. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's it. That's all yeah, it is. That, There's actually no, yeah, that's yeah. a hell of a thing. I feel like but that's well also kind Roth, of a metaphor though. for the whole yeah. movie. Here's yeah. some things that happen that are vaguely and tenuously connected. Do they matter? Mm-hmm. No. Not no. At all. No. I actually have a coworker who has a sweatshirt that just says, video games in a cheerful font. And, you know, Aww. that's kind of cute and fun because it's a shirt. It's not a movie. Right. <laughs> it's not trying to tell me a story. That's right. This movie is basically a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> it's essentially, to it be is fair, essentially a t-shirt. Yeah. It is a beautiful t-shirt. It's a pretty t-shirt. Oh, my God. The visuals in this. Oh, that's one thing. I guess it's not about the narrative, but a yeah. positive thing to talk about are the visuals. This movie is freaking beautiful. I mean, yeah. from top to bottom, I don't think there is a single visual moment that they did wrong. Yeah. I love all the colors. I love the alien landscapes. I, yeah. All that shit is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, no argument. I mean, that's 100% the best part of this movie from... Even even the drab, the more drab interiors of like the Ravager mm-hmm. ship. But once you get yeah. the details of like th- how they sleep and that they're all just like in a big pile and some of them mm-hmm. are sucking their thumbs and it's all ridiculous. But it's also like this is really attractive. I yeah, really enjoy looking at this. Yeah. He's yeah, a fine even director. The credits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yes. credits are, are, are adorable. Yeah. The credits are really nice. They have a lovely aesthetic to them. I think that like I really did love the I loved the visuals and the the design the art design on it I thought that that was unbelievable um and uh, yeah so I mean you know I can give James Gunn credit for that that he was able to direct a really really nice movie um but don't let this man write anything like yeah. ever ever again ever again and what a wonderful segue back into middle school humor and casual misogyny <laughs> tell us all about oh, it Lonnie so we open up this thing with Peter's this is how humans have babies kind of going to sleep with you for science or whatever the hell it was and he's saying this to a fucking queen with an army standing right there showing that a man's desire to fuck everything that moves overrides demonstrating any respect and deference to a woman even when she is the goddamn ruling queen now in Guardians 1 we had that whole thing with Nova Prime right who didn't even have an identity at least I Aisha has a name, so hey, step up, gun. Well done, gun. You gave her a name, aside from identifying her as her job. And she doesn't just have men telling her what to do, which is what Nova Prime had. There are some women there fighting with her. So, okay. Okay. At least we've we've gotten a little bit better. But still, the fact that, that Peter doesn't have to show any respect for her and make sexual jokes with her is just one of these things. It says, doesn't matter what you achieve, girl. You got boobs. You're still not worthy of my respect. So that pissed me off. And with that was just starting. Like, that was just the beginning. It's worse in a way that they wrote it that she was into it. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's bad enough on its own, but she's like, ah, this is what flirting is. And I mean, Mm -hmm. no, Uh, this is just gross. Why would she even know what flirting is if their society is so goddamn asexual? Why didn't she slap him in the head with a mallet? (laughs) Why? She's all powerful. She's running the show. She didn't have to put up with that shit. Lonnie has reached the why is anything anything portion. Why is anything? Yes, I'm already there. Yeah. Um, then we have the poop jokes. I have famously huge turds. Uh, okay. I, I guess, you know, again, middle school humor. A turd on its own, just existing, just acknowledging turds, like that's yeah. not actually humor. 
that's just responding to the fact that you, you're talking about poop. It's not a thing, you know. Um, and then, of course, Drax with the whole when he's talking to Ego, did you make a penis? And he has to understand how he was able to actually have sex. And then, of course, Ego's like, yes, I did make a penis. And I'm like, no, that's great. Let's just focus on the sexual genitalia of this guy who impregnated who cares? They didn't even have the guts to have Kurt Russell go, yes, and it's spectacular. And it's spectacular. <laughs> that would have been funny. That's a funny dick joke. But also, don't ask people about their genitals, even the guy. Like, don't do that in general. But, you know, it's just, it's so irritating, this whole thing of, like, the only thing we can focus on is did this guy or did he not have a penis? Because the penis is the main thing or whatever. Um, when we meet up with Sylvester Stallone, Stakar, Stalker, I couldn't, they only said his name once, you know. Speaking of other things I refused to go into during Four Color Facts, go <laughs> on. Yes. Yes. Uh, so he's on a planet full of robot prostitutes for absolutely no narrative reason. You know, uh, we just love women who shut up and shut down when we're done fucking them. Uh, you know, women are disposable. Oh, so that's another man. little misogyny for yeah. you. Right. It's so bad. It's uh, he literally puts pokes her brain and shuts her down. Oh. Right. I mean, for God's sake. And why do we need that? Is there a reason why we need that? Is there some reason why we have to have this, you know, this whole discussion, this whole conflict between these men, which is actually somewhat interesting. That's St- how do you pronounce his name? Is it Stakar? Stalker? How did- I think it was Stakar. I think Stakar? it's Stakar. Okay, I've only read it before this movie, so I'm not sure either. (laughs) I have no idea. Um, But Stakar and and Yondu are having this conflict over Yondu trafficking in children, which actually is a really interesting conflict. And the idea that these Ravagers have an ethical moral code. uh, Yeah, I'm into it. But could I even focus on that for a minute? No, because I'm watching these women, you know. It's disgusting, and there's no narrative reason for putting that in there. There's no reason other than standard, you know, garden variety misogyny, you know, which drives me crazy. Um, We've got Mantis for reasons that make absolutely no sense. We present her as childlike, as a child, but she still wants Drax, so we're still using her as a sexual object as well. He treats her with absolutely no respect, tells her she's hideous, is verbally abusive and cruel to her, and she internalizes every... I'm disgusting, right? She internalizes Mm. his view of her and then still likes him. Down to accepting being a pet. Yes. 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 Sorry. Yes. It's I know it's just I'm so angry about this whole thing. So we have this whole thing where she's simple and she's pretty and she will endlessly take his shit. And isn't that funny? And then in the end, he sacrifices his own life to save her. So there is that. But it's completely unearned. This relationship is unearned. Um, We see absolutely no affection or respect for her until suddenly, you know, just before this, this gross bug lady is my new friend. Gross bug lady. That's her identifier. Mm. That is how he identifies her. And also uh, identifies her as his possession. She is my new friend. She belongs uh, to me. Yeah. Right? I got, I'm sorry, I can hear you guys. <laughs> no, because it's, no. T- I mean, yeah. look, there are, re- there are actual reasons for mm-hmm. some of what they do with Mantis, you know? Yeah. And it's not untrue that Ego's keeping her as a pet. And in any 
movie that gave a shit, like one half a shit about how women felt about anything, part yeah. of Mantis's story would be her realizing that that's not okay and enough. Yeah. Right. And if Drax was her friend, he could help her realize that. But no, she's his friend. She is there to serve him. Being kind of wide-eyed and childlike also makes sense. She's had no interaction with anyone except Ego, who keeps her as a pet. I mean, mm -hmm. some of this actually makes sense, but what they use it for is so fucking reprehensible. Well, and they don't bring her back. They don't bring her out of it. I'm sorry, Rob. Go yeah, ahead. sorry. I just wanted to add that the 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 line where it's just how incredibly pointless how dumb they make her is when yeah. when I think it's Drax asks about her antenna and she says, "I think they're involved in my empathic abilities." Gee, do the things that glow when you use your empathic abilities maybe connect to those empathic abilities? <laughs> Wait, she could have just said, "Oh, it's how I use my powers," or you know anything that you know implies certainty. We, yeah. But we have to have doubt on this thing that is blindingly obvious they won't even give her ownership of understanding her own fucking body yeah Ugh. right yeah yes no wow no it's terrible it's terrible and then and then and then we get ego who says over thousands of years i implanted thousands of extensions of myself on thousands of worlds i need to fulfill life's one true purpose to grow and spread covering all that exists until everything is me hello white colonialism there we go yeah at least he's the villain. I mean, that's not supposed to be right. At least he's the villain, right? <laughs> At least it's supposed to be bad, right? Yeah. You know? Um, and then, you know, this is a very, very minor thing, but Peter tells Yondu that he looks like Mary Poppins, and then Yondu says, oh, you know, was he cool? And then, of course, he doesn't correct him by saying, no, Mary Poppins was a woman. He just says, yes, he was cool, because women can't be cool in this universe, so why even bother trying to explain something like that? Um, there are so Many. I mean, this is just the stuff that was off the top of my head before my head blew apart in fury and I just couldn't write anymore. Um, there's so many <laughs> threads of casual misogyny throughout both of these movies. And then Rob, of course, as we were talking last night, comes upon the multiple fridgings of Meredith Quill, which I think is brilliant. And, and Rob, can you talk about that a little bit? Because it was really a great insight. Sure. I, I'm sure you all have talked about fridgings you know, as a concept on the on yes. this show. Mm -hmm. um, so Meredith Quill has the distinction of being the only character I can think of who has been fridged not once, twice, or thrice, but four times. <laughs> so <laughs> let's let's go back to the first movie. So obviously mm -hmm. she dies of cancer. P Peter runs out where he can get abducted. Okay, fridging number <laughs> one. The Walkman represents his mom for the rest of that movie. She it is then taken from him, motivating him to do some stupid near suicidal shit, getting it back when they're trying to escape the prison. Okay, fridging fridging number two. <laughs> In this movie. We find out, um, we motivate Peter to finally uh, fight against Ego when he finds out that Ego caused his mother's cancer. Fridging number three. And Ego breaks the fucking Walkman, which Peter acknowledges, you shouldn't have killed my mom and smooshed my Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, four Oy. times we have managed to motivate Peter with this one death, you know, in yeah. big dramatic ways. Without knowing anything else about the mother, aside yeah. from her taste in music. She, she was nice, she liked music, and she's men. dead. That is all yes. there is about Meredith Quill. And not not to be a dick about it, but her taste in music is, if it's on, I love it. Right. <laughs> Which is not exactly a defining character trait. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it is, I don't know, Rob said that last night, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, uh, so, 
Yes. That's yes. just the, that's misogyny cherry on top of the misogyny Sunday. They just couldn't possibly have enough. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty awful. But another thing that, that we noticed when we were watching it is the unbelievable body count in this movie and how casually we have all of these deaths you know when marvel has a very cavalier attitude in general to collateral damage you know when we're having a big big fight which of course we ended up talking about in civil war with the accords sofcovia accords and all that kind of stuff so we sort of addressed it a little bit but it's something that we've seen a lot but here we have like when when rocket and yondu escape Yandu uses that arrow to slice through like hundreds of these guys. Now, granted, they're bad guys, right? You know, um, it's capital punishment. They killed Yandu's guys, so Yandu is doing eye for an eye type of stuff. And yeah, they're bad guys who would absolutely kill Yandu and Rocket without blinking. But let's try to remember like what separates the bad guys from the good guys, and just killing everyone. Is not really, I think, a good guy look, especially while we're trying to retcon Yondu as a good guy. And the way the scene is framed, it, you know, there's like mm-hmm. chipper music playing where, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's funny that we have this like literal raining d- bodies at one point. Yeah. It's, we're definitely supposed to have this like as a, a feel good moment. <laughs> look at all the dudes dying. <laughs> Isn't it cute and funny? Yeah. I mean, Joshua, did you have a did you notice that? Did you respond to that? What I was going to say earlier when you mentioned the dick and poop jokes is that the humor of this movie is dialed directly into the brain of a 12-year-old boy. And mm-hmm. I know that because I watched it this time sitting right next to one who <laughs> laughed like a lunatic every time I just got a more furrowed brow. Like I was oh, just yeah. mad about it. And to be honest, the body count thing is part of that. Like it's sure. it uh-huh. is shot to be funny. Like it's mm-hmm. yeah. and so when you are a not very mature person, like a reasonable mm-hmm. 12-year-old boy, it's hilarious. And I'm like, ha ha ha, mass murders fucking hysterical. <laughs> Fast yeah. forward. I just so it didn't Right. I, yeah, it's just more of that kind of as lowest a low common denominator as you can have type stuff. Right. Right. And we're trying to redeem Yondu as a quote unquote good guy so that we can have this whole father thing at the end, which we will get to, Um, you know, and he trafficked in children and and he's been rejected from his community because he did bad shit. And so here he is doing bad shit as a humor note. Hold on too. he got kicked out of the brotherhood of big criminals for yes. being too much of a shit heel. <laughs> yes. Pirate for the pirates. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, you know, all of that I think is just it's just a bit much. It's too much. It's it's way too much. It's way too I mean, I don't care about any of the ravagers. So on one hand, it's like, okay, bye. Well, and they and they just, you know, put all the in the airlock like all of the guys that were loyal to Yandu. So I mean, there is a sense that like they did this too but i mean that's what there's something is supposed to separate the bad guys from the good guys it, well yes and and <laughs> and that's actually an mcu problem you know mm-hmm. i usually make tony stark the point of that spear but yeah it's not missing anywhere like it touches every level of the whole universe that mm-hmm. we're just a little cavalier about death for a bunch of superheroes yeah yep 
Yeah, and, and also not looking, I think, directly at it. No, and when we do, it's pretty good, right? Like um, yeah. um, the fallout from Hulk going crazy in Age of Ultron is one of the mm-hmm. few places where that narrative is worth a hot damn. And yeah. it, and uh, and Civil War, of course, that's like literally the whole thesis. And we can even go back to Avengers, where I was very excited that most of the Avengers' big fight at the end was saving lives, like on the label. Yes. Mm-hmm. They can't save everybody. They know that, but they're going to save everybody they can. And honestly, that's the end of Age of Ultron, too. We're not leaving without that. So it can be done even in movies Mm -hmm. that aren't very good. But here we have one that's not very good and also super cavalier about death. And God, maybe just pick one lane to be bad at. (laughs) <laughs> well, and it's interesting, too, though, because our like one of our, you know, wild wandering sort of antagonists is Aisha and the Sovereign. Right. But they do everything remotely. They're all remotely piloted when all of those, um, you know, ships explode. Right. The guys are just at their computer and the computers are going dead, but the, the people are still alive. So it is interesting that one of our antagonists is actually, I think... I think the only characters shown to have any kind of concern for for loss of life, at least for their own people. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, the sovereign um, are pretty, pretty good about that. Yeah, but it's an interesting contrast, though. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I mean, we can make it an interesting contrast. The movie doesn't think it is, but no, we can no. definitely figure that out. No, it is. I would, it is. I would I'm just that. Bet. Sorry, that sounded like I was shading you. I'm shading this movie. You're right. No, it I is. get it. Yeah, no, I get it. I got, I got what you were doing. But I mean, like, I, I, I find this is the thing also that's so frustrating is that that is actually a really kind of interesting point. And, and while I'm talking about it, Rob was the one who pointed that out to me. So, Rob, I want to give you credit <laughs> oh, for no. that, Not for important. that thought because. It was it was actually made it really interesting when you pointed that out because I hadn't really thought about it until that moment. Um, but also like the fact that we have this kind of you know hilarious body count thing going on, and then we have this in our antagonist actually would be really interesting if we had a writer I think who had any idea that that's what he was doing. <laughs> I wish we had a writer who knew what he was doing. The James Gunn story. The James Gunn story. <laughs> I usually don't like to attack the writers. I mean, generally, I don't, but I'm actually enjoying it today. Um, Listen, there's so nowhere have... else to hang the blame. Like, there, unlike there really a lot isn't. of these Marvel movies, there's not 10 writers. There's one writer. There's yeah. one, one writer. writer on this thing. This is one of those search. Like, usually I say one writer is usually best. This is one of those circumstances where, no, this dude needs a team. Mm-hmm. This dude needs a team of people saying, uh, no, like that's, I mean, that's what he needs. I'll go one better. He needs to just direct it and not write it. Yeah, exactly. Man. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely terrible. Then we've got all this girl on girl violence, right? You know, none of the men in this movie respect women at all. And we see that so clearly throughout. And when the women have a chance to bond, they instead turn on each other. When Mantis comes up to Gamora, you know, with her empathic abilities and Gamora says, touch me. And the only thing you'll be feeling is a broken jaw. On the one hand, yes, I'm absolutely with Gamora because Mantis is violating a very real boundary there and whatever, you know, Um, at the same time time it is this this women against women we have the the conflict of nebula versus gamora you know and then we have aisha you know basically fighting everybody you know um (laughs) so all of this and and when we have this this you know conflict with nebula and gamora like nebula is blaming gamora 
for the things that Thanos did. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's yes. and she's putting that all on Gamora and Gamora's like, well, wait a minute, you know, um, and that's the thing that drove me crazy is that Nebula is not an idiot. She knows that Thanos did this to her and used Nebula or used Gamora and pitted them against each other. And a more deft writer would have made that the the, the crux of Nebula's realization yes. was that I've been putting the blame on you. But obviously Thanos is the problem here. And like, said yes. that. <laughs> I'll tell you, though, I don't actually hate where Nebula winds up when she says, yeah. all you wanted to do was win and all I wanted was a sister. I was like, that's pretty good. And also explains why, right or wrong, she's angry mm-hmm. at Gamora instead of Thanos. That was yeah. I, I will. I mean, I'm going to say broken clocks, but that was actually pretty deaf. Right. And I was into it. Well, see, the thing is, though, that that and I think Nebula is smarter than that. Like to have been in that where she's after Gamora, you know, where she's because I don't think that there's anything. Gamora was as much a victim of all of this as she was. And so Thanos did pit them against each other. But for Nebula also, I don't think that we seed that realization in her very well at all. It's like all of a sudden she's in the middle of finally killing Gamora, which is the one thing she's wanting to do the whole time. And she just stops. There's sort of some mutual life-saving going on that mm-hmm. realigns perceptions, but yeah. it, it would have been a lot better if anybody in the first movie had done anything for a reason other than the script said so. And Nebula right. and Gamora are really good examples of that, because if they had laid the track for this all the way since then, this would be the greatest thing. I'm super tipping my hand about my favorite part, you guys. Um <laughs> Possibly because it's the only good narrative. It's the only good arc yeah, that anybody in this movie has is Nebula and, to a lesser extent, Gamora. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's... Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just ran out of steam on being mad about it. I'll do it again <laughs> at the favorite part. <laughs> well, this is 90% me ranting. So you guys jump in at any time because I can't even imagine how annoying this is for anybody listening to me. <laughs> if we want to take a quick break from ranting... I yes. have just a, a straight up question for Joshua. Yes. Um, so it, we we have seen in this movie and the other like spacey Marvel movies, there's this weird like hexagonal pattern that appears in the sky when they're going to go like you know faster than light sort of travel. Do we know what the fuck that is? Is that is that our infrastructure that has been built? Is that a naturally occurring phenomenon? Anything? I don't know if they have ever explained any of that other than to say going through a bunch of them is bad right mm-hmm. i don't is that like i don't equivalent know equivalent to 616 or anything i don't think so um hyperdrive or hyperspace or just moving very very fast from place to place is often hand waved to helen gone in the 616 as is proper everybody sure. should move at the speed of plot including yep. ego who got a hyperdrive crammed in his south pole <laughs> <laughs> So I, I don't think that the, that they have. I, I'd be really interested if anyone had done the thinking to sort of establish that as an ancient Cree or ancient scroll or even celestials, like real ones, not these knockoff celestials like Ego. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe we'll get that in Eternals. But honestly, I kind of think Eternals looks really serious and should probably hold Guardians at more than one arm's length. So I, yeah. I don't think they've explained it. Uh, but don't we wish they kind of had? Yeah, it sure looks like it's artificial constructed something. Yeah. Which, yeah. of course, mm-hmm. implies a whole backstory to it. 
but nope. Just like much of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably James Gunn thought it looked cool. and Yeah. Which, yeah. Yes. you know, listen. And it does. That's 90% of superhero comic stuff is just law of awesome. We'll figure yeah. out <laughs> why later. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, it does look, it looks like not natural, but nobody's trying to control them, which seems like, anyway, I know that's not what this movie's about either, but it, it's, yeah. yeah, it's. It's a microcosm of weird choices. There would be mm-hmm. like geopolitics about these things, though, for sure. Oh, certainly, right? Because they'd all have to work together in these different areas of the universe. I have often thought that a book all about geopolitics in the Marvel universe would be amazing. And if you mm-hmm. took that off of Earth and into the entire galaxy, yeah, I'm into it. I am yeah. very <laughs> curious. <laughs> No, I think that'd be really, really cool. And I actually, I really, I love the idea and the world building that would be involved with with all of these places having to work together to build these entries into, and, you know, somebody, I mean, like, let's face it, it's it's the the way that people work. And even though these are aliens, everybody's coded as people. Like when we have talking animals, they are still coded as human. Like it Mm -hmm. is necessarily human nature that we're always evaluating, even when we're talking about alien races. Uh, But everybody having their territory, you know, in different areas of the universe, that that territory belongs to somebody and somebody has to be responsible for creating that space. And I actually find that a really interesting kind of question. But of course it is, you know, and I love that phrase, Joshua, the law of awesome, because that is basically (laughs) what that is and it's very very cool i mean i love the way that it looks i think visually visually this is a beautiful freaking movie now all that said it does look really interesting i think we all would like to know about it but i think part of the reason we'd like to know about it is because we don't care about anything going on in the foreground of this movie (laughs) and let's all remember that once upon a time the star wars franchise thought hey let's fight about trade routes was a good way to start a space opera it isn't so let's talk about highways is also maybe not the best way to run a space opera. <laughs> maybe not. And I think that you have an absolute valid point that because nothing else in this movie is is something you really want to look at, then you start looking at that stuff. You start looking at the little hexagonal thing and like, ooh, how'd that get built? Um, so I think that is absolutely a very re- interesting question and definitely more interesting than the question of like, what the fuck with Peter's real father? Right? I love the politics and the Phantom Menace. Listen to Metaphors be with you. Is that right? <laughs> Absolutely listen to metaphors be with you. Rob does a lot of this fascinating. I mean, here's the thing, guys, just just as a little behind the scenes thing. Um, I don't like Star Wars. There's lots of reasons why I don't like Star Wars. Do not at me. I know I don't like Muppets either. Just calm down. It's okay. I cannot like it. But um, Rob's thoughts on Star Wars were so interesting to me that I actually approached him about doing the Star Wars podcast on <laughs> yeah. my network. That's how good his thoughts on Star Wars are, that <laughs> it makes me like Star Wars. So listen to Metaphors Be With You. Get caught up on it now uh, because it's coming back really soon, as soon as I finish editing those uh, <laughs> those files. But we're going to have a third season of it coming up really soon. And it's freaking fantastic. And I can say that as somebody who does not generally care for Star Wars. So Metaphors Be With You. Go at it. <laughs> To your, it's really, really great. Um, all right, so back to daddy issues with um, with Peter. That we have this whole thing, right? Um, basically, you know, we've we've all been about the mommy issues, you know, with him, and I think that was one of the things that was nicely done, even though we had to fridge his mom a thousand times. But I liked the way that the the um, Walkman was representative of that relationship of the of his love for her and how much he missed her and 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 that he was listening to the music that she loved, and that was such a big part of his identity. 
identity. Mm -hmm. Um, But we didn't really ever talk about his father. His father was not present, you know, um, even before he got kidnapped, you know, off of off of Earth. So we do this whole thing here where we're doing this really, you know, kind of like pretzely retcon where we're like, you know, we have Gamora with that whole speech about David Hasselhoff and maybe he's your Hasselhoff. And it's supposed to be so cute because everybody makes fun of David Hasselhoff. And, you know. Whatever. And then we've got Yondu in this position as the real father, you know, the real father figure, even though I don't believe and you guys can argue with me on this because I might it might just be my intense hatred of this that I'm not seeing all of this part (laughs) clearly. Um, But I don't believe that we really set up Yondu as anything other than a bad guy who kidnapped and abused Peter and was not like set up as like this this father figure who I am the one who truly loves you Peter you know this kind of no. thing um, aside from the fact that when Peter screwed Yondu over at the end of Guardians 1 um, he laughed he didn't go out and kill Peter and he also kept the little troll doll um, yeah so, but I mean, that's I guess... one thing at the end of the movie there is no way no right. way that this idea of Yondu it. as your real dad was a thought yeah. anyone had had before they sat down to write this movie. There is no way. And I won't Thank believe you. anyone who tells me otherwise, and we might take it outside, because that is... Why would you tell such a blatant lie to me? We're two adults. Why would you do that? I, we, right! Whoa. It's retcon gaslighting, because none of that, I think, is seeded, aside from that one like three second shot, you know, where he's amused by the fact that Peter screwed him over. Um, But aside from that, like, I don't really see this father-son relationship. I don't see him, the Hasselhoff thing, you know, is something that is so much not a part of anything that we've seeded into his character that Gamora has to spend a whole awkward, I don't know, five minutes doing a really painful exposition dump on that. Um, And a retconny exposition dump even worse, right? Um, So I don't know, like, what did you guys think about this whole relationship with Peter and his dads and all of that stuff? Well, I will say that I really appreciated actually giving a little cameo to David Hasselhoff. I thought that was fun. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. (laughs) <laughs> why couldn't they use some de-aging ah. technology on him? Why Right. Why would Ego think that older David Hasselhoff... I also liked it. I'm saying this because I also kind of liked it as a moment. But then I was like, you guys maybe should have put like a little more effort into that. Just a titch. Yeah. Yeah. Kurt Russell mm-hmm. looks so young and, and like flawlessly young in the opening prologue. Yeah. Yeah. So they yeah. clearly like had that special effects tech available to them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I hadn't thought about it. It does look like it doesn't look like Knight Rider era Hasselhoff, which is obviously the right answer for for Peter. Right. And I will say that uh, I am very interested in any other uh, thoughts Rob has on daddy issues since Star Wars is an entire universe <laughs> built on daddy issues. It's daddy issues all the way down. And, you know, honestly, I think because because I am so steeped in Star Wars and its daddy issues, I kind of don't think about them. There, there's it's like a fish noticing water like. Right. It's right. Just... <laughs> right. Do you know you're wet? No, I do not. Tell me yeah. more about these daddy issues. <laughs> I just don't, I don't see it. And we have this whole thing where he's like, all I want to do is play catch with my dad. And then we have this catch moment, which is heavy handed to say the least. Right. You know, and I mean, you can say something that there's like a blue 
there's the light ball that they're throwing back and forth is blue and Yondu is blue and Yondu's the, uh, uh, that's oh, a stretch. No. It's a fucking stretch. Lonnie, you know? Diane, Rich, how dare you even suggest that was a thing they kind of thought about? <laughs> I don't. I'm not saying that they did. Again, accidental symmetry, even a broken clock. I mean, let's face it, right? Um, it's just, it's just such a bad thing. And then, and then, and then, he's fine. Like, and this is another thing. The conflict drives me crazy because there's no conflict until finally, at this moment at the end, when. He Ego, with all of his evil overlord monologue confessions, why does he tell Peter? He's okay. Let me see your ego. You want your, you know, son to help you, and out of all of the children that you have had all over the universe that you've killed because they were useless, this is the one, the one that can give you finally, after millennia, what you want and what do you do? You tell him you killed his mother. Why? <laughs> He's not a good super villain. And I think that's no. also because the only person because he's had James to talk Gunn to is Mantis. Writer? Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, you're going to give that. <laughs> I mean, I could see. This is the thing. Okay, with both Mantis and Ego. Now, we've already beat uh-huh. this drum to death with Drax. And I'll yeah. recall back to the first movie that I heard that story about a kid who's ASD who saw himself in Drax, you know, being very literal. And that is like the only good thing that Drax has ever done. And it was an yeah. accident. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we've already beat the cluelessness to death with Drax. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a reason for that with Mantis. And there's also a reason for that with Ego, where if he had just been legitimately confused, like, I don't know what you're so mad about. She's just one human. She's just a woman. And he's been out. But he's been out there like you know romancing all of these women from all over the galaxy he's getting all of these women to love him like he has to know how how people like how living beings feel and think you have to have a certain amount of understanding i mean even the sociopath may not have empathy but they do have an understanding of like how people work and that's how they're able to manipulate them so well so i mean this guy is in that model um he why would he not think, oh, if I tell him I killed his mother, oh, it was a real bummer to have to give her that tumor. Like, what the hell? It's just, it's it's so dumb. And the whole, like, evil overlord, let me sit here and talk to you for a little while about my evil plan, you know? Like. Okay, now that uh, is yeah. a fine tradition, and I applaud it. <laughs> when it's done at all well. Like, listen, a day is coming when an angry man in a metal suit is going to refer to himself in the third person and explain to you how he already took over the world 10 minutes ago. It's too late. Hated Richards. That man is Dr. (laughs) Doom. And that is going to be a joyful and beautiful moment. Okay. Uh But this, this is like the palest moon cast shadow of what that will be. I hope because yeah, it's not good. I really, there is a part of me that looks at the third act of this movie as James Gunn being a kid at the end of the test who just starts going, see, 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 see. 
the script has gone on long enough. Quick, how do we how do we uh, how do we make this clear? Uh, smash the Walkman. Right. Uh, say I gave yeah. your mom cancer. Now he'll be mm-hmm. pissed. Yeah, but James, why would he say that? Bob, oh, can't hear you. I'm turning it in. Yeah. See, 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 see. <laughs> the SAT tutor told me to answer everything just right. in case. Because even points for by your name. accident, you might get some good. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, it's just fucking bad. All right. So I'm I'm done with all my ranting. <laughs> Is there anything else that you guys would like to talk about about this movie? <laughs> I had another question for Joshua. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know what to make of this. I feel like I'm being set up every time. Yeah, what do you I'm think? Sorry. What's up? I don't mean to No, I don't I'm mean excited to about it. Yeah. I'm excited about it. <laughs> okay, so I want to confirm the Sovereign is a creation of this movie, right? Not a comic thing? Yes, that's correct. Aisha and Adam, who she mentions at the end, are both not solely created for this film, but the idea of the Sovereign is. Okay. And something that caught my ear at the beginning um, is she refers to our sovereign citizens. And that is a phrase that exists in weird fringe libertarian circles. Does that mean anything here? Or is James Gunn trying to allude to that? Or is that just weird shit happening that makes no sense? That seems unlikely to me, if only because they're kind of like classically authoritarian, right? Like you couldn't yeah, find a like less libertarian, libertarian group. Yeah. yeah. No, it sounds like something he just thought sounded cool and put it in the movie, which, by the way, I'm not complaining about because Stan and Jack did that shit all the time. But they also were maybe not, you know, quoting right wing nut jobs at the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's too bad. It's too bad, too. Uh, The Sovereign are actually also, you know, pretty interesting. um, Mm -hmm. And I virtually guarantee that they're not going to do anything in the third movie with uh, with Aisha or Adam Warlock. That's a shame. Well, it is and it isn't. They're such a well, mess, and I don't want James Gunn making shit up on his yeah. own. Right. I would like a better writer to to do my favorite Adam Warlock thing in a movie someday. Yeah. But, yes, that would be good. And and having yeah. Aisha show up first. Anyway, I don't want to go too far down that trail because Rob and I yeah, will go yeah, yeah. nuts. Let's not do that. But <laughs> it's really interesting. Like, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, and also having a um. Uh, like bread for specific jobs, like we are genetically perfected to do our job, is a thing that I thought was really interesting in Man of Steel and also really interesting for Krypton. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you're focused on Krypton, you're very wrongheaded about Superman, right? So let's do that here. But yeah. we don't, you know. Yeah. So yeah it's, but no, the Sovereign, oh, not from the... Com- I'm surprised they haven't been introduced into the comic books, except I guess nobody would know what to do with their connection to Adam and Aisha. Right, right. Oh, but when you said bread just now, I spelled it like the, the delicious yeasty thing you bake. And then I was just <laughs> thinking about like the sovereign who has been bred to be the the best baker and imagining what that bread must taste like. I'm bred and for bread. Also, hey. it is now lunchtime and I'm thinking about lunch. <laughs> all right all right we will wind this up and let you go eat rob um all right we're on to our favorite part joshua what's your favorite part uh my favorite part is gamora and nebula which i admit to you is largely unrealized potential but what we get mm-hmm. to see of it is so good i wish that yeah they were the center of this movie i hope mm-hmm. that they're the center of guardians 3 i don't think they're gonna be because james gunn's involved but yeah at the end of Endgame, which at the risk of being a little spoilery, the stuff at the end of Endgame just gave me such interest and hope in them and really felt like it would possibly pay off 
from mm-hmm. the stuff that was kind of ham-fistedly started in these two movies. I love them. And yeah, for yeah. anyone who also loves them, but wants more and better, let me just suggest you go watch the She-Ra reboot on Netflix. So good. It It is good on its own, but the stuff they do with Adora and Catra is 100% Gamora and Nebula done right. Yep. Oh, awesome. Co-signed. Good to know. Co-signed. Good to know. All right, Rob, what's your favorite part? Um, well, I've looked at the notes, and I know that your favorite part is also my favorite part, so what I'm okay. going to say... <laughs> <laughs> I co-sign whatever what, it, what Lonnie's about to say, and also I really like when Craglin says, "I didn't mean to do a mutiny." I think oh. that's a really cute line. <laughs> I do like Craglin. Can we land on the fact that the only anything with any emotional content in this movie is Craglin and a little bit of Nebula, but mostly Craglin? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Craglin is a genuinely cool character. I, I enjoy yeah. you know, like he has some vulnerability. He's he's clearly doing his very best. Yeah. He tries so hard, you guys. <laughs> and he's so sweet. Also played by Sean Gunn, who is James Gunn's brother. Oh, okay. Um, so possibly James Gunn might have seen Craglin as, you know, human because he actually is very deeply connected <laughs> hey, that guy with looks the like actor my playing him. Yeah. <laughs> that guy is like my brother, and therefore I might treat him like an actual character. So I don't know. But yes, I absolutely agree that Craglin is um, is one of the high points, and I really actually like him quite a bit. Um, and then, you know, what I was going to say is that the visuals, the visual design, the aesthetics of it, um, all of that, the direction, I think is fantastic. I think that that visually I I think that this movie is pretty much perfect from beginning to end it is just beautifully done yeah it is stunning it really is all right well Rob thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us here today and listen to all my ranting both last night when we watched it and today as we record (laughs) my pleasure thank you both for having me Rob's had a big dose of that. All right, so tell the good people where they can find you, Rob. Uh, I am at rhybrid on Twitter, and I am also a regular on the uh, Discord uh, room we have for uh, patrons. Yes, absolutely. So you can come find us there for anybody who supports us on Patreon. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. Thanks to my son. <laughs> Thank you, baby Unruh. This episode of Listen Up, A-Holes is brought to you by the Chipperish and Pulp Diction producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Listen Up, A-Holes is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our February producers. April, Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Alice, Noel, Erica, Abigail, and Jonathan. Thank you, producers, and to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions. This message is for you. You know it would be a really kick-ass name? Taserface. Mm. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, our Patreon links are in the show notes. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or really jack up your prices now that you're two-time Galaxy Savers. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Spider-Man Homecoming, and I am very, very excited for that, especially after this experience. Until then, <laughs> well, of course I have issues. That's my freaking father. God, don't you love it when they make the subtext into text? No, I do I not. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case, let's say it out loud.
Yeah. It's so subtle. The rest of the movie is so subtle. Yeah. People are just not going to pick up on this shit. No. We don't spell it out. I just want to do one of the more obscure Ghostbusters quotes that nevertheless gets a ton of mileage in my house. You don't think it's too subtle, Marty. You don't think people are going to drive by and not see the sign. Oh, God, this movie's fucking terrible. Okay.